service. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. A tall, dignified gent with a black mustache. Shall I call him for ya? Mr. Watkins? Mr. Watkins? This lady wants to speak to you. She ain't living with her husband. Yes, the marriage was happy. It was living together afterwards what caused the riot. The stories about silent film star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle are insane. A century ago, at the birth of movie superstardom, he was at the center of a scandal that rocked Hollywood to its core. He was the highest paid actor of his time, and he was accused of a murderous sex crime so depraved that it turned the nation not only against him, but against Hollywood itself. And a hundred years ago, this sensational scandal played out much as you'd expect it to today. Then, as now, the scandal was bigger than Hollywood. It led to the trial of the century, in fact, three trials, and a test of whether America's elite veil of privilege could be pierced by the long arm of justice. The scandal also inspired a tabloid media circus that turned a tragedy into a violent soap opera, and a defense that ruthlessly attacked the victim's credibility by digging up dirt from her past. Despite that defense, the tide of public opinion that believed the victim and toppled the star was so strong that it made Hollywood change the way that Hollywood did business, at least on the surface. But still, a hundred years ago, there was a movie star named Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, and overnight, he went from a box office hero as beloved as Tom Hanks to a villain as reviled as Harvey Weinstein. When we think about our current moment, the reckoning we're going through now, is it possible it all happened a long time ago in a Hollywood far, far away? Has anything really changed? To quote William Faulkner, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And in the past, over a hundred years ago, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle made great films. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Justine Roberts performing The Shop Girl in 1922. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to play you a clip from Fred Niblo's The Three Musketeers. And why would I play you that specific slice of celluloid cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on September 5th, 1921. And that was the day that Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle hosted an infamous party at his room at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. A party that would leave one person ruined and another person dead. On this episode, sensational scandals, tabloid media circuses, reckonings, and Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season one, Hollywoodland.
William Randolph Hearst leaned back in a large fireside chair in his San Simeon castle, the 168,000-acre California estate he'd recently inherited from his dead mother. He closed his eyes and smiled. Smiling wasn't really his thing. Hearst was 58, and the older he got, the less he had to smile about. His wife, Millicent, 20 years his junior, didn't really do it for him if he was being completely honest. Neither did his live-in mistress, the actress Marion Davies, who was three decades younger. What did make him smile was the promise of a good story, a story with legs, one that could hit a nerve with the public, even if it required editorial embellishment. Like that nerve he hit in 1898 when he lobbied against Spanish rule in Cuba and helped provoke the Spanish-American War. For Hearst, Newspapers needed to make him money first and provide news second. You know, exactly as they do today. Nothing's changed. In September 1921, one in four Americans were reading a Hearst paper. The San Francisco Examiner, the Los Angeles Examiner, the New York Evening Journal, the New York Morning Journal. All told, 20 dailies and 11 Sunday papers. Didn't matter that it often wasn't actually news. It was often muck raked up, nice and juicy, the more sensational, the better. The breaking story that Hearst had just heard about, the one that was making him smile in his fireside chair, was capital S sensational, controversial, scandalous. Controversy and scandal made William Randolph Hearst smile because they both had the promise to make him even richer than he already was. This story involved everyone's favorite fall guy, silent film star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. But there was more. There was a party at a San Francisco hotel, bootlegged gin and scotch, a dead girl. The details were still a little fuzzy, the facts weren't all there. But since when did Hearst care about actual details or facts? News is what people don't want you to print after all. Hearst just needed the gist, the kernel. He could create the rest. He could create the story, the kind of story that would sell a ton of newspapers. In the first two decades of the 20th century, Hollywood, California had gone from a small community of teetotaling Midwesterners seeking to build what they called a Christian utopia to a bustling city that served as ground zero for the motion picture industry. The movie people were not the teetotaling type. They took the Lord's name in vain. They smoked, they drank, and during prohibition, they drank illegally. They bought drugs, they took drugs, they had sex, lots of sex, illicit sex. And the reality, of what was happening in Hollywood may have stayed under wraps for a little longer if it weren't for Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle in the death of Virginia Rappé. It was a powder keg of a story. At its center was a wild party that flew in the faces of America's social mores. It had drug addicts, bootlegged alcohol, and it had sex. But it had more. It had rape, and it had murder. The gist was this. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, at the time the most famous and richest actor in the country, had raped and murdered a lesser-known actress named Virginia Rappé. It happened at the St. Francis Hotel, San Francisco, Labor Day. From what the reporters who worked for Hearst could gather, it looked like Roscoe had dragged a drunk Virginia off to one of the bedrooms in the three connecting suites he had rented, and then took advantage of her. Virginia had been vomiting. She was unconscious, or at least half-conscious. The attending doctor said that Virginia's bladder had been ruptured, and the cops guessed it was when Roscoe, who weighed at least 260 pounds at the time, climbed on top of Virginia. She was monitored by doctors in the hotel room for a few days and then taken to a nearby sanitarium. 
A friend told the cops that Virginia, while writhing in pain, told her that Roscoe did it. Virginia died four days later from peritonitis, a bacterial infection along the inner wall of the abdomen. And there was a rumor. The rumor was this. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle raped Virginia with a glass bottle. The depravity of Hollywood's untouchable elite seemed to know no bounds. And the rumor would go on to have a life of its own, but the Arbuckle scandal was about more than just that particular detail about the rumored rape with the bottle. It was about whether or not one of the industry's most popular and powerful figures was potentially so popular and so powerful that he could get away with something so heinous. The question was, could Hollywood's biggest star get away with murder? Scandal and Hollywood were like peanut butter and jelly. Media magnates like William Randolph Hearst spread them out on two slices of bread, put the pieces together, and called America to the table to dig in. Hearst played the scandal perfectly. Paramount wanted the whole debacle to go away, but the crime had happened in San Francisco, not Los Angeles. In San Francisco, the DA wasn't in the pocket of the powerful studio executives as the DA in Los Angeles would be, and thus, the San Francisco DA was not afraid to prosecute a popular and powerful Hollywood star. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The ambitious San Francisco DA saw an opportunity to put Hollywood itself on trial, and thus advance his own political career under the bright lights said trial would garner. So while Roscoe's lawyers told him to clam up, Hearst 20 dailies and 11 Sunday papers sang a salacious chorus of shocking headlines. Girl dead after wild party, SF Blues party kills young actress. Get Roscoe's deathbed plea. Witness testifies Arbuckle confessed. He tortured actress. Detained Arbuckle. Fatty Arbuckle charged with actress's murder. Fatty's death or Arbuckle faces gallows. The court of public opinion was in session. And as it was called to order, the press began to dismantle the facade of Roscoe Arbuckle, fresh-faced Hollywood homebody. William Randolph Hearst dug up Roscoe's past problems with morphine. He printed a doctored photo of Roscoe holding a liquor bottle on top of Virginia's body. He ran a cartoon of Roscoe in the middle of a giant spider's web, two bottles of liquor in his hands, surrounded by seven women caught up in that web. Roscoe's weight, once a source of comedy, was now used to vilify him. The San Francisco Bulletin described him as a mountain of lecherous flesh, a mad elephant in an avalanche of lard. They couldn't print enough copies of the papers. Morning editions sold out, evening editions sold out, special editions printed just to meet the demand for the readers who needed their daily fix of debauched Hollywood scandal, sold out. And while William Randolph Hearst sat in his oversized chair next to his fireplace, smiling for the first time in a long time, Roscoe Arbuckle sat alone at a table inside cell 12 along Felony Row of the San Francisco City Jail. It was early morning. Roscoe finished his breakfast of eggs and toast. Perhaps he thought about Virginia Rappé. Perhaps he thought about his own misfortune. He had just wanted to get out of town for the weekend. And now everything he'd built was gone. And there were rumblings that the recriminations might not end with Roscoe Arbuckle, that a tide was turning. And they weren't just coming for Roscoe, they were coming for the rest of Hollywood too. One of the guards walked by his cell, scanned the area to make sure they were alone and stopped. He asked Roscoe to do the cigarette trick, the one he did in his two-reeler, the bellboy, where he pops a fully lit cigarette out from inside his mouth. How the hell did he do that? The guard was whispering. Another guard wandered over, he started whispering too. For his money, Roscoe's best cigarette gag was the one in Goodnight Nurse, 
where he's trying to strike a match to light his smoke in the pouring rain. The two guards began laughing at the thought. They put fists to mouths to muffle the noises they were making, lest they were caught cavorting with America's least wanted man. Because Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was now the rotten core of the country's soul. Forget prohibition. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was prohibited. His films yanked from theaters, first San Francisco, then Los Angeles, then the country. His films were banned. Paramount put a stop on his paychecks. And the guards were able to stifle their laughter. Straight faces returned. Hey, Fatty, one of them said to Roscoe, tell us the truth. You really kill that girl? March 6th, 1917, Boston. Four years before the whole Roscoe Arbuckle, Virginia Rappé mess out in San Francisco. Back in Boston, dinner at the Copley Plaza Hotel had been a swank affair. More than 125 esteemed guests, mostly movie theater men from New England, stuffed themselves on bouillon soup, roast beef, jellied veal, Charlotte Russe for dessert, all on Paramount Pictures dime. Above them, crystal chandeliers hung from the ceiling. In front of them, no single piece of silverware was out of place. Cloth napkins padded the corners of mouths as the president and vice president of Paramount waxed poetic about their juggernaut studio's future in a post-Nickelodeon world. The guests were really interested in the dinner's honoree, the silent film comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Roscoe's latest two-reeler, The Butcher Boy, was set to debut in their theaters the following month. It featured Roscoe's latest discovery, a then unknown comedian named Buster Keaton. As usual, Roscoe got the biggest laughs. He was Paramount's biggest catch and one of the biggest earners in Hollywood. Paramount wanted to flaunt their prize star, so they put Roscoe on tour in 1917. It ran coast to coast and Paramount hosted receptions at each stopover city in Roscoe's name. Banquets, luncheons, dinners, parades, from San Francisco to Chicago, Washington DC to Philadelphia. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle made the whole country laugh with his quick wit, his huge smile, and his predilection for pratfalls. Tonight in Boston, East Coast theater men were getting a first-class taste of Hollywood's glitz, glamor, and hospitality. But to get to the real party, the party that put a tiger in your tank and some hair on your chest, the party way down on the lowest rung of the DL. The party that you couldn't tell anyone about. For that party, you had to get out of the city. 11 miles north, battery-powered carbon headlamp bulbs on full blast. Destination, Woburn, Massachusetts. There was chicken and champagne in Woburn. Now, chicken and champagne didn't just mean chicken and champagne. Not at the Mishawan Manor, it didn't. But then, nothing at the Mishawan Manor was what it seemed. The place was run by a woman named Lillian Kingston, but everyone called her Brownie Kennedy. And though she called the place a manor, most people in the know knew it by another name. In the company of polite society, you call it a roadhouse. Otherwise, you just call it what it was, a brothel, a bordello, a whorehouse. And so when Brownie Kennedy asked the Paramount exec how many gentlemen he was expecting for his quote unquote chicken and champagne after hours, what she really meant was, 
How many women will it take to satisfy every last depraved desire of every last horny studio man with pockets deeper than the Mystic River? Brownie called her employees actresses, but Zucker, Lasky, Abrams, and the other Paramount brass didn't need more actresses in their lives. They had plenty of those out west. They needed women who did more than act, and that's exactly what they wanted when they arrived at Mishawang. Knocked twice, waited a beat, knocked three more times, and were quickly ushered in under the cover of darkness. Inside, the fried chicken was piping hot. The champagne bottles foamed over. Brownie wheeled out the main course, hidden under a giant stainless steel dome on top of a giant silver platter. And the men gathered around the dome like a pride of lions circling their doomed prey. Brownie dramatically lifted the dome to reveal not fried chicken, not roast beef, not jellied veal, but a woman. No older than 18, on her hands and knees, naked from head to toe, a few sprigs of parsley between her teeth. From all sides of the encircled pride of Paramount execs, more women slowly walked into the room, a dozen, and then a few more. And then the party really got started. At Brownie's place, the Paramount men were as liberated as Brownie Kennedy's morals. At joints like Mishawan Manor, hidden away from the prying eyes of the public, they were free from the teetotalers, the reformers, the goddamn Methodists. Anything goes, or so went the saying, and then anything went. But one thing was missing, one thing didn't go, one big thing. Hey, where's Fatty? A partygoer shouted around two in the morning, one hand wrapped around the naked flesh of a Mishawan paramour, and the other clutching an empty champagne flute. Where was Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle? According to the actor himself, he was still at the Copley Plaza Hotel, fast asleep. His wife, actress Minta Durfee, was his alibi. She was snuggled up next to him in bed all night long. Whorehouses weren't Roscoe's cup of noodle juice, and neither was being on the make with the locals. Roscoe Arbuckle was a very big star, and stars didn't do that sort of thing. Plus, he didn't want to get caught up in any scandal should the chicken and champagne affair go pear-shaped. What if word got out? What if a narc with a camera planned to catch the whole lot of them in a badger game? What if the joint's piano player turned stool pigeon? Scandals like that led to stacks of studio hush money. And the movie bosses, they were more than happy to cough it up. Just like that one time when the cops pinched Captain Spaulding for dealing cocaine on the studio lot. Some gold bricks spilled the beans. The dealers were all over Hollywood in the late 1910s. On the Fox lot, ask for Mr. Fix-It. At Paramount, Captain Spaulding was your habits commanding officer. The studio chiefs had to pony up half a million hush money to make the clusterfuck go away. Sometimes, cover-ups didn't require money. They just required an airtight lid and a little diversion. Case in point, shortly after signing with Paramount, Roscoe Arbuckle went cold turkey to kick a morphine habit he'd developed while recovering from a staph infection on his knee. Kicking that junk made Roscoe's nose run. Kicking that junk made Roscoe puke his guts out. Kicking that junk made Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle shit his brains out. When all was said and done, he had lost over 80 pounds. He was no longer the funny fat man, the one who was pushing 300 pounds. He was under 200 pounds for the first time since he was a kid. And what the fuck was funny about a fat man who wasn't fat? So Paramount told the public that Roscoe suffered a little mishap during a particularly dicey stunt on set, hence the cane and the limp. And there was no staph infection, there was no morphine habit. At least that's the story the public bought. The reality of Roscoe Arbuckle and his junk addiction was suppressed by the studio, just like the reality of the party at the Mishawan Manor would be suppressed. 
Two months after Paramount Suits got their debauched yayas out at the Mishawam, Brownie Kennedy's piano player squealed and Brownie was sentenced to six months for running a den of sin. The studio executives' names hit the Boston papers, and Paramount acted fast. The studio greased the palm of the Middlesex County District Attorney with $100,000 and the story was dead. For a few years, that is. Four years later, in the summer of 1921, the story reared its ugly hushed-up head when the same DA was called out for taking bribes. It didn't matter that Paramount insisted Roscoe hadn't been there. And the after-party was in celebration of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle's official party at the Copley Plaza, wasn't it? According to the papers, it was, so in the press, the papers called it Fatty's Orgy. For the studios, for the star, for Hollywood, the timing couldn't have been worse. Roscoe had recently signed an unprecedented deal with Paramount, making him the first movie star in history to pull down a million dollars a year. The world was supposed to be his oyster, and now the entire country associated the name Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle not with the words comedy or movie star, but with the word orgy. As it turned out, that was just the beginning. Bad was about to get worse. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Roscoe Arbuckle needed a break. 1921 had been a long year, and it was only September. Roscoe was busy working his ass off. Busy wondering if and when he and his wife Minta would cut the separation bullshit and just get a divorce already. Labor Day was fast approaching. The long holiday weekend provided an opportunity and an excuse. A few days out of LA, the wind in his hair, the road wide open. A party footloose and fancy free. San Francisco would do the trick. Did he need another reason to split? If he did, he could blame the heat. The summer of 1921 had been hot. So hot that the mercury hit historic highs in LA. At his mansion in the fashionable West Adams neighborhood, the house with the gold leaf bathtub, crystal chandelier, and fine art and imported furniture, Roscoe spent a lot of time down in the basement, where the temperature was much cooler, and thus more in step with the constitution of a man his size. But it wasn't just better weather Roscoe was looking for down cellar. His basement was where he kept the hooch. Prohibition was in its second year of enforcement, and per the dreaded Volstead Act, anyone caught imbibing in, possessing, transporting, or manufacturing booze found themselves in a world of hurt. The hurt would come either courtesy of Johnny Law, who would haul your law-breaking ass off to the slammer, or via a less subtle, more holy fuck I'm gonna die kind of pain, typically brought on by a swig of questionable white lightning from a dirty bottle you procured through the less than advisable channels. For the rich, like Roscoe Arbuckle, the Volstead Act was a non-issue. Money changes everything, they say, and that includes the ability to procure decent booze in even the darkest of times. All it took was an appropriate amount of greenbacks smushed into the meat hooks of the right person. Waiters, hotel detectives, judges, and you were strolling down Easy Street while everyone else looked the other way. Roscoe even had a secret cocktail bar built into his custom-made Pierce Arrow Model 66, the piece de resistance of his extravagant car collection. That collection included a caddy, a Rolls, a Renault, but the Pierce Arrow really set him apart from everyone else. And it also set him back 34 grand, 100 times what Joe Q Public could afford to plunk down for a Ford fresh off the assembly line. The Pierce Arrow was the car he decided to drive that weekend, Labor Day, en route to the city by the bay in the St. Francis Hotel, 
a real posh place known for a stacked guest list of Hollywood who's who and U.S. presidents. Imagine that, Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, just a poor schlub from nowhere, Kansas, renting out three connected rooms on the top floor of a lavish hotel on a holiday weekend. Roscoe couldn't be more surprised if Warren G. Harding himself jumped out of the joint's elevator and got him point blank in the kisser with a blueberry pie. In 1921, after years of singing, dancing, falling down, tripping up, getting hurt for a laugh, and being fat for a living on vaudeville stages and Nickelodeon screens for the likes of everyone in showbiz from Alexander Pantages to Max Sennett, the man known to audiences as Fatty had arrived. He was 34 years old. He'd been working since he was five. He'd acted in 150 films in the last 13 years. They all called him Fatty. Well, not his dead mother, God rest her soul, but definitely everyone else felt free to, including his father, that abusive, self-hating absentee pariah, as did the popcorn gobbling public who nearly pissed themselves while they watched him backhand Buster Keaton while dressed in drag or slip and land square on his ass in the middle of the street. The lower the brow, the better. If they wanted a highbrow two-reeler, Charlie Chaplin had a few of those. People called Roscoe Fatty even before he began to perform. They called him Fatty as a child. Roscoe hated the name. It was beneath lowbrow. It was demeaning. Fatty. But he could never outrun it. He was larger than most at every stage in his life. Allegedly 16 pounds at birth, plump as a preteen and overweight as an adult. In fact, the more he found his calling as a comedic performer, the more it was obvious that his weight and the happy-go-lucky persona of the cherub-faced fatty character, the undersized bowler hat and oversized pants hiked up with suspenders, was what put money in his pocket. And Paramount wasted no time putting Roscoe to work when they signed him to that now-legendary deal in February of 1919. It was a coup for Paramount. Word on the street was that Roscoe was planning to join his friend Charlie Chaplin along with Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford at the newly formed United Artists before Paramount made their move. Over Labor Day weekend, Paramount was expecting its million-dollar funny man to make an appearance at a screening of his latest picture, Gasoline Gus, in downtown L.A. He'd drive his fancy car around, press the flesh, smile for the cameras, do the whole happy-go-lucky fat man song and dance. It was all part of the highly publicized event, Paramount Week, an annual PR blitz that helped maintain the studio's image as king shit in Tinseltown. But instead, Roscoe bailed. For a few days, he wasn't going to be Paramount's fat man, so he grabbed two dozen bottles of the good stuff from his basement, stashed them in the Pierce Arrows cocktail compartment, hopped in the driver's seat, picked up Lil Sherman, a 32-year-old dramatic actor with a less dramatic mustache, and Fred Fishback, Roscoe's assistant director, and began the nearly 400-mile drive up the California coast. And the head of Paramount was pissed. So was his number two. Everything Roscoe had was because of these two Paramount executives, Adolf Zucker and Jesse Lasky. The house, the cars, the clothes, the bootleg alcohol. Zucker picked up his telephone receiver and asked the operator for a West Adams exchange. Roscoe's house. Roscoe's Japanese servant answered, but he didn't know his boss's whereabouts. Lasky called Roscoe's estranged wife, Minta, but she hadn't seen him on account of the estrangement and all. Lasky slammed the receiver on the phone's cradle. Zucker was able to track down Buster Keaton, who was on his way to Catalina Island with his bride. Buster was as close to Roscoe as anyone. Buster broke the news that Roscoe was headed north for some R&R. 
and the Paramount bosses fumed in tandem in their well-appointed offices. They'd spent the summer trying to get the resurrected Mishawam Manor story killed, and now the man on top of their payroll had the balls to blow them off. Big fucking balls, Zucker muttered in disgust. The biggest, Lasky responded. Zucker and Lasky were the last people on Roscoe's mind when he checked into his three connected rooms, 1219, 1222, and 1221 at the St. Francis with Lowell and Fred on Saturday, September 3rd, 1921. He made a point to not think about anything else but a good time. That was easy. The trio dined, took in some shows, saw the sights. They accepted deliveries of contraband booze from the hotel's basement speakeasy. And the first day warranted four bottles of gin and scotch. By Monday, September 5th, Labor Day, they needed another dozen bottles from the St. Francis Blind Tiger. Because at that point, word had spread about the spontaneous hootenanny happening on the 12th floor. The people just started showing up. A chorus girl from a nearby cafe, a guy who said he sold women's underwear, a movie publicist. And that publicist brought two women with him. One called herself Maude Delmont, and the other, Virginia Rappé, was a little-known actress in Hollywood. Roscoe just happened to know her. Small world. And the party kept swinging. More people. Some tipped off by the guests who were already there. Others who heard rumor of Roscoe Arbuckle holding court with the best liquor that only money like his could buy. The front desk sent up a Victrola, 78 spun and crackled. More bottles opened, more glasses filled, shirt collars loosened, cigarette smoke, another knock on the door. Laughter, dancing, glasses rattling, shirt sleeves rolled up, more people, clouds of cigarette smoke getting thicker, the sound of another cork popping off a bottleneck. It was all a little more than Roscoe had planned for, to be honest. But it was good, clean, albeit bootlegged fun. It was all good, all good, until it wasn't. And the moment it wasn't all good, was when that actress that Roscoe knew, Virginia Rappé, screamed out loud and ran to the bathroom to empty the contents of her stomach. In the fall of 1921, the American public couldn't get enough of Roscoe Arbuckle's trial for manslaughter and the death of Virginia Rappé. The papers called it the crime of the century. In the press, Hollywood, America's new culture factory churning out fast fortunes and celluloid dreams, was also on trial. And in the courtroom, the strategy for getting Hollywood out of trouble was the same as it is now, attack the victim. Virginia Rappé was dead. Roscoe's lawyers killed her again. Virginia wasn't a well-known actress, but she had her own career at a time when the idea of modern, liberated women was still brand new. At the time of her death, the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote, was less than a year old. Virginia was a model and fashion designer who gave her first interview at age 17. She had her own life, but the defense called witnesses who painted Virginia as a drunk. People who said they'd seen her rip her clothes from her body numerous times and that she'd complained of frequent abdominal pain. Doctors testified that some of the bruises on her body may have happened after she had died. They even found one doctor who testified that he had treated Virginia in the past for cystitis, a chronic inflammation of the bladder. And the defense also dug up dirt on Maude Delmont, the prosecution's star eyewitness. Maude was Virginia's friend who was with her at Roscoe's hotel party and was the one who gave the initial statement accusing Roscoe of assault. 
the press referred to Maud as the Avenger because she was the one who would ensure that Virginia's death was not in vain and that her attacker would be brought to justice. And here's where things get complicated because Maud was complicated. In Greg Merritt's book about the case, he describes how Roscoe's defense team uncovered Maud's arrest record. That record included an incident where she'd attempted to extort money from one of her lover's fathers in order to keep their relationship and her pregnancy a secret. The defense planned to use this history to suggest a motive for Maud to frame the movie star. They would tell the jury her plan was to extort money from Roscoe Arbuckle by making him think that she possessed evidence that would lead directly to his guilt. But the defense never got that chance. According to Merritt's book, Maud's version of events often changed and the state decided not to have her testify at all. And then, Maud was arrested in San Francisco just days before the trial began. The charge, bigamy. The defense's strategy worked. The trial ended in a hung jury with 10 of the 12 jurors voting to acquit. The second trial got underway in January of 1922. That trial also resulted in a hung jury, but this time, 10 of the 12 jurors thought Roscoe was guilty of manslaughter. Over the years, the stories about Roscoe Arbuckle changed. In his time, he was seen as a villain. But by the 1990s, history began to take a different view. Books like Jerry Stahl's lightly fictionalized biography, I, Fatty, turned Roscoe into a sort of anti-hero. And Greg Merritt's 2013 book, Room 1219, began to chip away at the story of the crime that had lodged in the public imagination. Merritt dug into initial reports about Roscoe violating Virginia with a glass bottle and found that the story had evolved over time and was likely an exaggeration. Merritt's opinion, after a long investigation, was that prosecutors at the time didn't have enough evidence to charge Arbuckle with a crime. But he also thought that evidence pointed to Roscoe following Virginia into the room at the party that night and locking the door behind him. He believed Virginia's injuries were likely suffered at Roscoe's hands, and he believed Roscoe had lied under oath at trial to cover up what had really happened. A hundred years later, it's impossible to reconstruct exactly what happened in that hotel room. What we know is that Virginia Rappé's friend, Maude Delmont's initial affidavit states that while Roscoe was in the room with her and Virginia, Virginia writhed in pain and said, he did it, I know he did it, I've been hurt and I'm dying. But in 1921, that simply wasn't enough. Despite his history of morphine addiction, the orgy he was alleged to have attended back in Boston, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle's reputation as a party boy in the eyewitness testimony, there just wasn't any concrete evidence. And so, with Virginia Rappé perhaps spinning in her grave, when the final jury came back, they let Fatty go. It was clear even then that just because Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle won in the courtroom didn't mean he'd won in the court of public opinion. In the public's mind, Hollywood had just gotten away with murder. And that might explain one of the strangest elements of Roscoe's acquittal. The jury didn't just give Roscoe a not guilty verdict. All 12 jurors and two alternates signed a written apology, claiming that Roscoe was, quote, entirely innocent and free from all blame. According to Merritt, that letter was likely not written by the jury. It was likely written by Roscoe's lawyers as a PR move. They wanted to launder the mess that had been made of Hollywood's squeaky clean image. And the letter didn't help Roscoe in the slightest. After the trial, he was dead broke. 
He sold his cars and his mansion in order to chip away at the $100,000 bill owed to his legal team. Meanwhile, Hollywood tried to wash off the stink of the sordid crime. It announced the creation of a new self-governing organization called the Motion Pictures Producers and Directors of America and hired former Postmaster General William Hayes to run it. Hayes' directive was to sanitize Hollywood's image, both on and off the screen, and he started with banning Roscoe Arbuckle from working in the movies. Spoiler alert, it didn't last. This was Hollywood after all. And whether or not Roscoe was guilty of an awful crime, he could find a second chance in the land of fast fortunes and celluloid dreams. William Hayes thought so and said so in a statement to the press when, in December of 1922, he allowed Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle back into the Hollywood machine after eight months in exile. And then, after years of uncredited cameos, the only work he could get when he came back, in 1926, Roscoe got a bigger break. Roscoe received an offer to direct a romantic comedy called The Red Mill. The offer came with two caveats. One, he couldn't use his real name. That name was tainted. His new nom de cinema would be William Goodrich. The second caveat was that Marion Davies would play the lead, as the film was funded by Cosmopolitan Productions, which was owned by none other than Marion's lover and benefactor, the man who made fortunes off Roscoe's very public misfortunes, the scandal baron supreme himself, William Randolph Hearst. And so, as Roscoe Arbuckle shouted action through his director's megaphone, and looked out on Marion Davies and at the largest cast and crew he'd ever overseen, he felt something lurking behind him. It was always there, staring at him, watching him. It tapped on his shoulder. He didn't turn around, though, because he knew what it was. The thing that caused his downfall in the first place, and also the thing that gave him a second chance. It was one and the same thing, two sides of a coin, the muse of comedy and the muse of tragedy, both on the same stage, together, sock and busk and ying and yang. He hated it, and yet he was thankful for it. And each time he felt it tap harder, Roscoe would think back to that first time, long ago, when someone said those fateful words to him. Hey, fatty, you ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.